Mary knew what his name was before she was even pregnant. Faced with a heavenly being that had been sent through a shining rift in time and space, she learned that she would conceive a child and would carry him and give birth to him, and then she would name him Jesus. So there were no lists. There were no family names to take into consideration, no favorite story characters' names, no traditional Bible names, or any conversation at all that we know of. There was just the waiting. A time of pregnancy, a time of travel, a time of delivery. There were jostling shepherds, and then like this period after the holiday when everyone goes home and the decorations come down, there was quiet and stillness. Maybe a little reminder of how things were before all this happened. There was a time focused only on caring for the newborn, days and hours dictated by his sleeping and eating, sleeping and eating. And after eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise him, and he was named Jesus. Jesus came to be called many other things by many people in many places, in his own time and in the centuries since. But Jesus is the name he responded to as a baby. When his parents tried to get his attention, tried to get him to smile. Jesus is the name he responded to as a kid when he was called in from outside. Jesus is the name his peers called him. It was the name he heard when they found him. His parents found him in the temple in Jerusalem. They'd been looking for him for three days when he was just 12. Before all the other names, it was his first name given by God. That's the way the story about his name is told, this little tiny story. And I'm not even talking about the shepherds and the angels, just a little bit about him being given his name, about it being time to name him. The whole emphasis is on his God-given name. His circumcision, I mean, that's important. It connects him to his people and a long history. But... In the sentence on the page, it's just on the way to his name. And his name, the story reminds us, was given by the angel before he was conceived. His God-given name came first. When I was born, it was after 24 hours of largely unproductive labor and eventually a C-section. And after I was born, my mother, she reports, called out from the haze of exhaustion and drugs and relief, Rebecca Ruth, Rebecca Ruth. My parents had chosen the name for me together. They had it locked and loaded. They had decided to give me as a middle name my mother's name. They had decided against the biblical spelling of Rebecca because my dad doubted I would be smart enough to spell it. Although he defends himself now and says it just would have been harder for me to spell the K-A-H version. Before the medical staff took me to clean me up, I saw this dark hair, my mom says, and these blue eyes, and she called my name. Our names are arbitrary, or, you know, to Chris's point, they're not. For many of us, our names have been deliberated and discussed and debated and chosen, but taken as a whole, names are arbitrary labels. It's why it's so hard to remember names in a room full of strangers. In a room full of strangers, 
a Scott is no different than a Brian. Like, lists of names, they might as well just be lists of nouns that we've heard of but have no picture for. I'm sorry, I know you just said it, but is your name chair or window? It's like separated from who we are, they're completely arbitrary. But because they get spoken to us so often, so early, while people tried to get us to smile and tried to call us in from outside, what our friends called us, our names come to sound to us like us, us, us. Which is why it's so hard when someone fails to remember them. We've been introduced like half a dozen times. I know too that for some of us, our given names don't sound or feel God-given. Our given names are not full of love and recognition for some of us. They don't carry us. Instead, we drag them around like dead weight. But even that doesn't mean that we don't each have a name that would make us turn around when called out, even in a crowded room. The way I became a pastor and ended up in Chicago and the way I ended up being ordained by the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, all of that is very arbitrary. In fact, I think some of the folks who ordained me sensed how arbitrary it was and worried about it. But I thought I was just being honest about something that I was coming to think increasingly everyone knows is arbitrary. I mean, I worried too sometimes. I worried, for example, that I became a pastor only because I come from a Christian family, only because my dad is a pastor, only because I wanted to, I don't know, do something in the family line. I more than worried, I knew that I ended up in Chicago just because the pastors at my home church in Boston had been to the University of Chicago, and I ended up in the Disciples. This is the part that worried the people who ordained me. I ended up Disciples not because I felt moved by Disciples theology or polity, but because my pastors in Boston were Disciples, and one of them said, well, if you do end up feeling drawn to the Disciples, if you do end up going to Divinity School, There's a program at the University of Chicago that will pay you to go. I mean, I was suspicious about all of that. And then about my dad and my family heritage, a mentor said to me, of course that's part of the reason. We all have a variety of motivations for things we do. And as for the disciples piece, I mean, I was definitely happy for the scholarship, grateful. But I had a scholarship to go somewhere else too. And in the end, I decided that there was no need to feel guilty. The disciples, that's the denomination where God found me. It's where I heard my call. I was sitting in the pews, and it was a very small but unmistakable moment. Oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I had spent my whole 20s thinking I was lost. I mean, my resume was eclectic and meandering, as I've said here before. But then, sitting in the pews, I heard it. God, I mean... And I realized I wasn't lost at all. I stuck really close to my parents when I was a kid. I was both a rule follower and a scaredy cat. So I was rarely lost. I would never have wandered off like Jesus did when he was 12, not for any reason. I certainly would not have hunkered down the way he did in the temple for three days, knowing full well that his parents had headed home. I actually only have one memory of ever being lost or separated from my parents. 
although I'm sure it must have happened more than once. Just in a grocery store, and I was panic-stricken. And when my mom and I connected around the end of an aisle, she'd just been one aisle over. She had, of course, been looking for me. During Jesus' ministry, his grown-up adult work, I mean, he spent a fair bit of time wandering around, often with purpose and a destination, but for a lot of it kind of meandering back and forth across the map. And then eventually, after a lot of labor of one kind and another, he ended up in Jerusalem. Especially in the book of Luke, that's been his destination all along in the middle of all the wandering. There's a point in the book of Luke, in fact, where abruptly he gets very focused when, as the writer says, his face was set toward Jerusalem. During Jesus' ministry, his adult life work, he spent a fair bit of time wondering about his identity, or maybe not about his identity, but about what other people thought about his identity, who they thought he was. And I don't know, it's speculation, but I'll, I'll backtrack and say, I think he did wonder about his own identity, not because of some theological claim that Jesus did or didn't know who he was, that he was the Son of God or the Messiah, but just because he was human. And part of being human is to wonder about who you are. So he asked, and answers came back to him, you're a prophet. You're the Messiah. You're Elijah somehow? You're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. They called him teacher and master and rabbi, friend, blasphemer, lawbreaker. And yes, as the angel had promised Mary, they called him in one way or another the child of the Most High, the Son of God. Jesus had moments of clarity. I mean, I guess. Based on the stories and and based again on his being human. Maybe one was when the heavens appeared to open and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and a voice was heard to say through a rift in time and space, this is my beloved with whom I am well pleased. Maybe another was on the mountaintop with a handful of disciples and an appearance by Moses and Elijah. Maybe in smaller moments he knew when he was able to help someone or set someone at ease to quiet the demonic voices that filled their headspace with so much noise that they could never have heard anyone say their names. Maybe he knew in private moments like when he went away to pray early in his ministry or toward the very end in Gethsemane when it was becoming all too clear to him who he was and what it meant. There's a danger in telling call stories, even little ones like mine, in the pews in Boston. Never mind ones about Jesus. There's a danger in telling call stories that someone will hear it and think, well, I don't have a story like that. That's all well and good. There's an additional danger in telling Jesus call stories that not many of us are too excited to follow exactly where his path took him. But I do think that we are all called, I think we are all called to wonder about our identities. Not once, but many times. I think we are all called to listen as hard and as well as we can, because in spite of what we might have been told by parents who 
didn't love us as well as they were supposed to, or by peers, or by religious leaders, by our own inner demons. In spite of whatever we've been told, we each have a God-given name, and it is one that God calls to us over and over again, has been calling to us over and over again. And that true God-given name resonates in us like a taut string plucked. Anyway, those big call stories, here's a little one. There's this space that opens up in a pastor's calendar, in my calendar, after Christmas Eve. When we're working, yeah, but there's time. And this winter, between Christmas and New Year's, I spent a ton of time sitting at my loom, I have a loom, and weaving, weaving for like hours on end. And as always happens, every time I get the chance to weave for hours on end, I think, oh, right. This is who I am. This is what I love. I love it so much, and it grounds me so much that I've been thinking about it, and I've been wondering, what created this space? I mean, yes, the calendar, but we really were working. And somehow I had energy and space and attention to sit down and create a little bit of stillness in which to weave and be myself and remember who I am and part of who I'm called to be in this very small way. I keep wondering about it. I wonder what let me hear it, what let me feel the pull to the loom and to who I am. I wonder what I can do to make it possible going forward. I wonder how I can listen well enough with more regularity. I wonder what dull roar needs to be stilled. And so for you, too, I mean, I wonder those same questions. I wonder what it is that calls to you or pulls on you or would. I wonder what is your first or truest name. I wonder what is the one that sings in you with a twang that makes you turn your head or stop or start or realize, thank God that you're not lost after all. I wonder what the name is that has been yours at some level all along, even if the name people call you has changed, even if the name you call yourself has changed. The new year is an arbitrary time to ask these questions, to try and answer them. But I'll take it. I wonder what calls to each of us and to us as a church as we move into the new year, feeling purposeful or meandering, wondering who we are, or feeling deeply like ourselves. I wonder how we can be a church where people, where you, can hear God calling you still again and again because God is. God is. God is saying the name by which you are most fully known and loved. And you, your name will be called 